We're going to take a look this morning at this encounter that Jesus had with the woman at the well in the region of Samaria. As you remember from our previous gatherings, that we've already had a, a very lengthy encounter with Nicodemus and going through the message that Jesus has shared with him. He left that region to go to the Judean countryside where he spent time with his disciples and taught. We don't have the content of what he taught, but we see from our previous chapter, what we'll see a little bit today is that Jesus oversaw the baptism of a number of people who came to faith in him. And he had pulled away and was there for maybe four or five months. During that time, he had a discussion with some of John the Baptist's disciples about which baptism was superior. John has pointed them towards Jesus. And now it's Jesus' turn to share himself again with a very needy individual. Now, what I want to say at the beginning of this message is this. This story is not about the woman at the well. This story is about the living water. This story is about Jesus being the Son of God, being the agent of the new birth, being the source of our salvation. And it just so happens that this reality of who He is is shared with us in this experience of this woman in Samaria. What's also very interesting about this encounter is that Jesus isn't too preoccupied with the kind of characters or individuals that he is going to spend time with, that he is going to teach, that he is going to love and tell, with, tell them about himself. God is no respecter of persons. God is not looking for the smartest or the wealthiest or the most polished externally. God has called us because we need Him and in grace He has allowed us to know who He is and be able to respond to Him in faith. In John's Gospel, this is now the second lengthy narrative or interview or encounter that we have as He is preparing to make His ministry more public than it has been Thus far. Now, there's a couple of interesting things as we look at what we've seen so far with the person of Nicodemus and this individual here that we see as the woman in Samaria. Nicodemus was educated and powerful and respected, orthodox and theologically trained, and the woman was unschooled, without influence, despised, and capable only of what would be considered folk religion. He was a man, a Jew, and a ruler, which meant a lot in this day and age and in this culture. She was a woman, a Samaritan, which we'll learn a little bit more about in just a moment. And she was a moral outcast in her own people group. Both, despite their differences, had an equal need for Christ. And that's what's pivotal in my estimation about this passage today, is that regardless of our upbringing... Regardless of our morality, regardless of the paganism that we may have been saved out of, we all share an equal need for Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. In this particular account, we see Jesus dealing in love with a woman that no one else could deal with in love because she had become a total outcast because of the life that she had lived. And yet this was not a problem for Christ Because his love isn't determined by the object of that love. His love is determined by the character of his love. We need to recognize how different that is for you and I. We typically love because we deem someone worthy or deserving of our love. And somebody like a moral outcast that we would experience here in this encounter is perhaps somebody that we would not be very quick to share the love of Christ with. Jesus is no respecter of persons. He recognizes the need. He recognizes what he is here to do. And this is what it is that he has set his heart to do. So look with me now in John chapter 4. This is a very lengthy passage. We're going to go all the way through verse 26, but we're going to divide this into four different sections. And because the length of the passage, we're going to read each section as we come to it. So for our first section, we're going to look at just verses 1 through 6. And here's what God's Word says to us today. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. The first thing we're going to see here are the circumstances of our narrative. As we read in verses 1 and 2, Jesus knows that the Pharisees are getting a glimpse of this new individual that has come to town. John has had a mass of followers. You remember as we've already gone through these passages that they inquired of John who he was. And so Jesus is now gaining a lot of notoriety within the region. He withdraws to teach and to baptize. And so Jesus leaves because his popularity is growing. Now what we know about, as we know the history in the Gospels, is that the Jews were always looking for an opportunity to capture him and to make him pay or to give an account for the things that he was saying and the things that he was doing. So he was drawing the attention of the Pharisees, preaching likely the very same message that John the Baptist was, a message of repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand. But this wasn't the time for a public confrontation, and so the Jews were already interested in him and were perhaps trying to gain more time with him, and so he decides to move on. He tells us here, and John tells us, that he's going to go back to Galilee. Verse 3, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So he has already been in that region. He has gone to Jerusalem for the Passover. He stayed around for a little while, did some miracles, gained some followers. He withdrew for four to six months and now he's going back into Galilee. And it's very interesting here what we learn in verse 3 is it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. What's very interesting about this is that when you hear the word, he had to pass, it almost sounds like it's a matter of necessity that he had no option in how he was going to get to Samaria or get to the region of Galilee that he was trying to get to. Now, there's two common passageways from where Jesus was to the region of Galilee. The journey straight through Samaria was a journey of about three days. It was significantly shorter, but it was the least traveled route by the Jews when they ever had to travel north of the region of Judea. They could also bypass Samaria by going east of the Jordan River, up the east bank, and through the Gentile region of Perea. They would still be exposed to the uncleanness of the Gentiles. It was a significantly longer trip. But Jesus has this idea that he's going to go through Samaria. It's not a physical requirement. Hang on to this. It is a missional requirement. When John says he had to go through Samaria, it's the same root word that we've already seen in the Gospel of John in chapter 3. John 3 said, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. We also see in John 3.14, And Moses lifted up the servant, serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That word had to is the same root word that we get from the idea of must be done. And so this isn't a physical requirement. This is a missional requirement that Jesus had in going into the region of the Samaritans. Now, here's the history lesson about the Samaritans. Excuse me, the Samaritans. The Samaritans are considered half-breeds. They are a race that were hated and despised by the Jews. All the way back in 722 B.C., when the northern kingdom fell at the hands of the Assyrians under the discipline of God, they deported many, many Jewish people and they imported many, many foreign people. And so what happened was the people who stayed in the northern kingdom now intermingled with these foreigners and they took them as their wives and they began to embrace their religion and they became a very despised people group by the Jews. For hundreds of years, there was a less than friendly separation between these two groups. Now, the Samaritans were unwelcomed by the Jews, and eventually they built their own temple for worship in about 400 B.C., and they did this in Mount Gerizim. And this became a point of sacrilege to the Jewish people. The Jewish people had decided based on the revelation they had from God, that there was only one rightful and truthful place for worship, and that was in Jerusalem. So when the Samaritans built their 
temple, the Jews were outraged by that, and it further separated the mindset that they had for this race of half-breeds. About 200 years after they built their temple at Mount Gerizim, around 200 B.C., the Hasmonean ruler in Judea led a coalition that would destroy the temple, and it created an even larger divide between the two people groups. So this animosity that Jesus' day and age is defined by is a big part of why Jesus had to go through the region of Samaria. So Jesus has to go through Samaria, not for a physical requirement, but because of a divine appointment. Jesus was going to go through Samaria, and he was going to break down the barriers and reach out to the forgotten and the unloved and the despised, to reach deep into the non-Jewish world and preach the good news of his coming. Now, we've talked about this already in John, and you know this from your Bible reading, is that it was never intended for the nation of Israel to hoard God for themselves. It was always God's plan that the nation of Israel would be a light to the world and would illuminate who he is and the other people's need for him through their faith and their worship and their obedience. We'll see this when we get to John chapter 10. Jesus says that I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Who are the other sheep? The other sheep are the Gentiles who weren't raised as Jewish people. Gentiles would include the very, very hated Samaritans that the Jewish people despised with such hatred that I don't know that you and I could truly understand the kind of animosity that exists there. So he had to go. He had to fulfill this divine missional purpose in bringing the good news of himself to this region that had become an outcast to the nation of Israel. He has to go fulfill the mission of his father. He has to say, he has to do what the father tells him to do. And this is why Jesus is now going to go straight through the middle of Samaria and have this very important encounter. Verses 5 and 6, follow along with me in your Bible. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the wall, by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So the city of Sychar is important because it gives us a very physical location for this divine encounter. It was an area that was purchased by Jacob all the way back in the book of Genesis, who was the father of Joseph, the same one that rose to power during the heyday of the nation of Egypt. Joseph was buried there, and this is a very important place for both the Jew and the Samaritans. The well was important in such an arid region. It still exists today. And Jesus has arrived there, not coincidentally and not incidentally, but for a very specific purpose, and he is tired from his journey. Another important timestamp here is the fact that John tells us that it was about the sixth hour, which means it was about 12 o'clock Roman time. Now, it's interesting that this timestamp is here because it gives a very important insight into the woman that Jesus is now about to have this encounter with. So our second section here is the contact that Jesus makes with this woman. We'll read through verses, uh, read verses 7 through 15. Follow along with me. So there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? In verse 12, You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well, and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. 
But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw water. So Jesus is sitting on the ground at the base of this well. The disciples have gone into town to get some food. And so Jesus is now going to have this one-on-one encounter with this woman. The woman comes to draw water at 12 o'clock, which is about the hottest part of the day. That's important. We have to ask ourselves a question. Why would she travel nearly a half a mile or more in the heat of the day to draw water? She does it because she is an outcast. She draws water. Typically you would draw water in the cool of the evening or in the very early morning so it wouldn't be such a hot and difficult journey with all the water you were going to have to carry. And she does this because she wants to avoid people. She doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want to be chided. She doesn't want to be embarrassed. She just wants to go on this little water journey all by herself and not be bothered by anyone. Have you ever gone out of your way to do something to avoid people? If you have, you know the kind of emotional trauma that creates when you feel like everybody is looking at you and everybody is talking about you and everybody is making fun of you. If you've never felt that way, difficult to get into the mindset of a person like this. She was an absolute outcast who wanted to avoid people at all costs. I would imagine she sees this guy sitting by the well and she says, oh great, it didn't work. I'm going to have to be addressed or I'm going to have to have some kind of encounter with this person. Number two, Jesus speaks to her. When He speaks to her, she is absolutely shocked when she gets there to see that there's a man there and he's actually going to talk to her. This request is shocking for three reasons. Look in verse 9. One of these is provided for us. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? Since I am a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, there's a couple of, re- couple of things that we see here. Letter A is that Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. They avoided them. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan. And here are all all these upright religious Jews walking by this person on the side of the road. And because he is beneath them, nobody stops to help them. You've heard that story, right? Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. They would not even acknowledge them. They would just look down at the road and pass them by like they don't even exist. Letter B, men didn't speak to women in public. This was a cultural faux pas for a woman, for a man to speak to any woman in public other than his mother. Couldn't speak to his wife, couldn't speak to his sister, couldn't speak to his children, could only speak to his mother if in public. Letter C, rabbis don't associate with immoral people. Jesus is recognized as a rabbi already. And so this is a big part of what brought Jesus a lot of grief in his ministry was his willingness to hang out with the sinners, the people who the Jews looked down upon, but that's because that was his divine mission. His divine mission was to share the truth of the good news of who he was and what it is he offers with the people who needed it so badly. So when Jesus asks for a drink, he has nothing to drink with. We'll look at this later. She says, you have nothing to draw from. Neither does he have anything to draw from. He has nothing to put the water into, which means that he is going to drink from her cup. Now, if you know anything about the way Jews and Gentiles looked at each other, a Jew that walked through the marketplace would shake the dust from their feet, the marketplace of the Gentiles, shake the dust from their feet and go through a ceremonial cleansing to rid themselves of the defilement of being in a Gentile region. To touch or to associate with a Gentile in public meant more ceremonial cleansings and rituals that Jews had to go through. He's going to drink from her cup. Think about being in the worst part of town and seeing a homeless guy there and he's just 
a typical homeless guy. He, he's pretty dirty and doesn't smell so good, and you can look at him and wonder uh, how healthy is he, what's going on. And you ask him to drink from his water bottle that he's been drinking out of. Would you do such a thing? You probably wouldn't, would you? This is what Jesus is doing. He's asking to use her cup. It would have been the most despicable thing a Jewish person could even think about doing. We've had some dark days in our country. Remember back in the civil rights era when black people were not allowed to drink from the same water fountains that white people would drink from. They couldn't sit in the same parts of the bus. And it was because white people looked down on black people like they were inferior and they were going to get sick or something bad was going to happen to them. Well, we're thankful that those days are passing. They're not all the way gone. But you can, you can get a bit of a mindset of what it would be like if you had that perspective that a black person or a Hispanic person or a Korean person, anybody not like you, was so dirty and vile that you couldn't even drink from something that they would touch. So he has captured her attention here. He has spoken to her, breaking down the cultural barriers, and she is extremely curious, wanting to know why he would do such a thing. And his response begins a process that will change her life forever. Number three, he offers her a gift. He says here in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. It's interesting that Jesus begins this encounter being thirsty and asking for her water, and he's turned the tables on her, indicating that she is thirsty and he's the one that possesses the water. He sees her spiritual need and he has the ability to meet her deepest need. He says, if you knew who I was, you would ask for spiritual cleansing, spiritual refreshing. You would ask for salvation and I would give it to you because I am the living water. This is tucked into one of the many I am statements that Jesus will make about himself in the Gospel of John, there's another one that's coming a little bit later. But here is Jesus offering to her living water. Now, remember that water in the Bible is synonymous with salvation and renewal of spiritual life. We read in Psalm 36.9, For with you, God, is the fountain of life. Isaiah 12.3, Therefore you would joyously draw water from the springs of of salvation, forth telling what was going to happen when the Messiah came. And then again in Isaiah 55, 1, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. It's the exact same thing that Jesus is saying here, and He's going to restate it again. All you who thirst, come to Me, and I will give you what you need. She's thinking only of physical water, but He is offering salvation the greatest gift that could be offered, and it meets the deepest need that she has. Verse 11, she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Well, the well is very deep. It's estimated the well is at least 100 feet deep, and he has nothing to get any water with, and he has the audacity to say, I have living water for you. And she wants to know, how in the world are you going to get that water if you don't have anything to get it out of the well with? Totally misunderstands, just like we would. And so this narration begins, and she questions his position. Verse 12, You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Now, this is something to point out. I'm going to repeat this a little bit later. Jacob was a great, great man in the lives of the Samaritans. Moses was the last prophet that the Samaritans recognized. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as being authoritative, meaning they discarded everything else, the rest of the history, the Psalms, and all of the prophecy that was given through Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of the others. And so they had a very narrow understanding of the full revelation of God. And so she knows that Jacob is the one 
who was the original purchaser of this well. And in her mind, Jacob is such a great guy. You're professing to have living water. Can you possibly be greater than our father Jacob? And that's what she asks him. How are you greater than him? She expects a negative answer because our father Jacob had to dig this well. It is very, very deep. And you can provide living water or running water, but you don't even have a cup, let alone a bucket and a long rope to get the water out of the well. How in the world can you be greater than our father Jacob? Well, her assumption is wrong. Her assumption is wrong on two on two points. One, the water that Jesus offers doesn't come from an ordinary well. It comes from Jesus Himself because He is the source of living water. And secondly, yes, He is in fact greater than Jacob. He is much, much greater than Jacob. And so Jesus slowly begins to reveal more about Himself to her in verses 13 and 14. And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And so, yes, I am greater than Jacob. What he's saying here is that you can drink all the water out of the well of Jacob, but you are going to get thirsty again. But when you drink of the water that I provide, you will never be spiritually thirsty again. Well, Jesus isn't talking to her about not needing physical water. He's talking about the new life that He offers in Himself, which satisfies the deepest needs of any human being. What water does from the physical well to quench our thirst, spiritual water from the source quenches our spiritual thirst. When the Holy Spirit is poured out into our lives at the moment of our salvation, it becomes a spring of eternal life inside of us, securing our union with God through Jesus the Son. It is a travesty that any professing Christian can feel like he lacks in his relationship with God, as if God has neglected him, or as if God has not provided all that he is that an individual needs in his life. For us to need something outside of a relationship with Christ, or to long for something that isn't fulfilled in our relationship with Christ, is a travesty, the reality of what God has done for us through Christ at the moment of our salvation by pouring out into us Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. When we drink of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to never, ever be thirsty for spiritual renewal, spiritual significance, or vitality in our relationship with Him. She is not convinced yet. The woman says here in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She wants water to cure her physical thirst and to remove this arduous chore to travel every day to get the water that her family is going to need. Her response fails to acknowledge the spiritual reality of her sin and of Him being the Savior. But Jesus is going to drive that point home now in the third section that we're going to look at. That is the conviction. The conviction is going to encounter verses 16 through 19. Here's what it says. Remember this conversation about this physical water now. He says, Go, call your husband and come here. Not what she was expecting to hear, I'm sure. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. In our encounter with God, and in the realization of our need for God, the first thing that we have to do is we have to come to terms with the reality of our sin. And this is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus reveals to her her sin. He knows that she has no husband. He knows that she lives an immoral life. He knows the kind of scandalous lifestyle that has been hers for who knows how long. 
She has had five husbands and is currently living with someone who is not her husband. Let me ask you this. What would our current culture think about such a woman? 50, 60 years ago, what would our culture have thought about such a woman? What does this culture think about such a woman? Rabbinic tradition did not approve of more than three marriages and no religious body approved of a common law marriage where a man and a woman live together and are considered civil married. They just, they just nobody acknowledges that. So this is the kind of individual that Jesus has now encountered. They've had this banter about water and he has revealed to her the depth and totality of her sin as it's being lived out in this promiscuous lifestyle. But more than just exposing her sin, he's exposing her need for the gift that he offers. And that's always the reason that the Holy Spirit reveals to us our sin. It's not to beat us up. It's not to make us feel dirty. It's not to make us feel undeserving or unworthy. It's to reveal our need for salvation. And if already saved, it's to expose our need for confession and repentance and restoration because as a child of God, we're not to live in our sin. We have been set free from the power of sin and we're not just a willingly accepted as just, well, that's just me. So he reveals her sin because he wants to expose to her the need that she has for what it is that he offers to her. Salvation requires repentance. You don't just accidentally or incidentally become a Christian. You don't become a child of God because you adhere to some kind of moral standard or because you go to church or because you've embraced some kind of religion in your life. You become a child of God because you've recognized the depth of your sin, your need for salvation, and you have expressed a commitment to turn from those things that result in your need for salvation, and you live a life that is committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is necessary for salvation. You must repent in order to be saved. Why do you think John the Baptist preached in the countryside, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. To be able to repent, you must be aware of your sin and the saved will always turn from their sin. Look at the summary that Acts chapter 26 when Paul was giving a defense of himself in Rome to King Agrippa. He says this, So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision when God appeared to him, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Not just the heathen Gentile, not just the barbaric Greek, but the Jew in Jerusalem and all throughout Judea all need to repent in order to be saved. How do you prove that you've repented from your sin? It's very easy. It's a changed life. The changed life doesn't bring your salvation. It is evidence of your salvation. When God convicts you of your sin and your need for salvation, there ought to be an immediate change of heart about those things that God puts in front of you and says, no, that is sin. I don't approve of that. That's not what's going to bring you into a close relationship with me. Jesus didn't grant perfection to sinners. We are all a work in progress. But He didn't leave us in this life without the ability to deal with our sin problem. He has given us the Holy Spirit, which is the power to repent. It's the compulsion to pursue the things that God has given to us to do. And it's the power to live the Christian life. Paul said this in Romans chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You know, in some 
Christian circles, some believe that the more you sin, then the more grace is available to you. What does that say in, in regards to what Romans chapter 6 says? We don't sin so we can get more grace. We've been given God's grace that has saved us from our sin. And we've been given the power of the Holy Spirit to turn away from our sin. And that is the right response when we are convicted of our sin. Titus says this, and Paul says this in Titus 2.14. He says that Jesus or God gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. The process of sanctification is our continuing conformity to the image of Christ as sin has less and less of a hold on our lives. If this woman was going to drink from the well of living water, she was going to have to deal with the reality of her sin, confess it, and then repent from it. Her acknowledgement of no husband and Jesus' insight into her life of sin has led her to a very important conclusion, and that is this. You may have what I need. The woman said to him in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. This is not a trivial acknowledgement. This is not something that is said in jest. It's something that is said with a bit of revelation behind it because as I've already told you, the Samaritans have not acknowledged any prophet since the days of Moses. So for her to say to him, I perceive that you may be a prophet, is indicating that perhaps you are the one who can give to me what it is I truly need in my life. And so her interest is, in, is piqued even more. And her response indicates that, she could, that he could in fact be the prophet, which is just very, very lightly alluded to in the first five books of the Bible, which is pronounced with great clarity through the rest of the Old Testament. But she still isn't so sure about who Jesus is but he's going to make it abundantly clear to her. As we look now at our last section, section 4, the Christ. We'll read verses 20 through 26 here. She says to him, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where man ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When that one comes, He will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. And so in this dialogue here, as she has hinted that you may in fact be the prophet, she's going to test him. She wants to resolve this issue of where the proper place for worship is. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain uh, near Mount Gerizim, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where man ought to worship. So there's a great dispute between Jews and Samaritans about the place where true worship can take place. For the Jew, it's only in Jerusalem. And for the Samaritan, it's where they built their temple. Both acknowledge that God commanded their forefathers to speak, to, excuse me, to seek the place where the Lord would choose, where the Lord would choose from among all their tribes and all the land to put His name for their dwelling. We read this in Deuteronomy chapter 12. But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to, to establish His name there for His dwelling and there you shall come. So both understood that God was going to reveal a place for His temple to be built where they would come to worship Him but because they rejected the rest of the Old Testament all they had to go by was what was in the first five books. So they've come up with different conclusions since they have different set of authoritative words from God. But through the revelation of the entire Old Testament, the Jews believed the proper place to be Jerusalem, and they were correct. But the Samaritans could see Mount Gerizim from this place right here, 
at Jacob's well. This is a very minor point because what Jesus is about to declare to them is this. The new covenant is being revealed to you which is going to change absolutely everything. So he gives to her an answer. This answer that he gives is going to be experienced in four separate statements that he makes here. So the first thing that he says here in letter A, the new covenant is coming. Verse 21, And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. I want to guarantee you that no Jew and no Samaritan ever wanted to hear that the place where they're where they have worshipped, is now going to be changed. They would call that blasphemous, and they would reject it as heresy. What Jesus is saying, that is in near the future, in the future, true worship would take place neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, because the new covenant renders all external ceremonies and rituals, whether Jewish or Samaritan, absolutely and completely obsolete. The new covenant which is found in Jesus, is going to change everything. Letter B, he answers her by saying that salvation is from the Jews. Verse 22. Now this sounds kind of callous, but Jesus doesn't intend it to be that way. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's answering her direct question, and because they have rejected everything except the Pentateuch, They don't really understand what it is that they worship. They are wrong about the location of worship. And there is the idea that they may actually be wrong about the object of of what they worship. Remember, this is a group that has intermingled with foreign people and have likely brought foreign religious ideas and ceremonies into their homes. And it's quite probable that their worship of God at Mount Gerizim is mixed with idol worship because they don't have the full revelation of God as revealed through the rest of the Old Testament. The object of their worship was perhaps truly unknown to them even though they were completely sincere. Uh, We've talked about this quite a bit. Sincere worship does not make it accurate worship. Right? You could be as sincere as possible and worship the frog in your backyard, but that's not going to get you to to heaven. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? You must be born again. And as Moses raised the serpent, so the Son of Man must also be raised. So the idea here is that sincere worship is not going to get you there. The object of the worship was perhaps incorrect. But because salvation is from the Jews, with the complete revelation of the Old Testament, with the Messiah, in fact, being a Jew, and being the source of salvation, but that doesn't mean that all Jews are saved, right? That's why he had to confront Nicodemus the way that he did. Let her see in the answer that he gives to her. The new covenant is here. It's not only coming, but it is, in fact, here. An hour is coming, verse 23, and now is... When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. The location of worship was very quickly going to be an absolute non-issue. Jesus is ushering in the new covenant, which makes the disputed location of worship between Samaritans and Jews completely irrelevant. So here's what Jesus says about true worship. In the new covenant... True worship is internal spirit, not external rituals and ceremony. Now look in your Bible at verse 23. You'll see when Jesus talks about worshiping in spirit, it is a lowercase s, indicating it's not the Holy Spirit. What this means is that Jesus has in mind the internal human spirit. True worship and the new covenant ushered in by Christ is going to be worship from the heart. It's not going to be worship that is observed in ritual and ceremony and tradition. It's going to be worship from the heart as the true object of worship has been revealed. It doesn't depend on being in the right place. It doesn't depend upon singing the right songs. 
and doesn't, it's not dependent on wearing the right kind of clothing, worshiping in sincerity from the human heart with accurate object of worship is what God is looking for. You know, the human spirit seeks to connect with God in a meaningful way. And in this pure and honest pursuit of worship, Jesus is telling them that's what God is looking for in Himself in the New Covenant. So true worship is not just about the internal human spirit, but secondly, it's external truth based upon God's Word. The object of our worship is explained to us through God's revelation. It is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. It is boldly and proudly declared in the New Testament. And so the object of our worship is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. We worship the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. This is not an attempt to dissect the Trinity, but it is acknowledging the role of the Son as our Savior in God's predetermined plan of redemption. What Jesus is saying is this, the honesty of our worship is not measured by sincerity alone, but by the object of that we worship. That's incredibly important for us to understand. Sincere worship of the risen Savior is what God is looking for. If the object of worship is incorrect, sincerity doesn't mean a thing. If the object is correct, but the sincerity is not there, it doesn't mean a thing. They're coupled together in a complete picture of what a true worshiper is going to look like. All my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and all my strength. Letter D, the fourth thing he says in his answer, is that worship is not bound by location. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Imagine if our location of worship was bound in some location. Where we had to go to truly worship God was dictated by some specific location. What would that mean? Well, at best we could get there once a year, maybe twice a year depending upon where we lived and how much money we had. But that's not the issue anymore in the New Covenant. It isn't bound by location because God is Spirit. That phrase identifies for us the classical biblical definition of the nature of God that He is Spirit. Not bound by time or space. He is not exalted flesh as it would be with an idol. He is the invisible God who dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. And had He not revealed Himself in Scripture and in Jesus Christ, God would be utterly incomprehensible to you and I today. Those who claim to worship the true God will do so with an internal sincerity based upon the revelation of Scripture. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. So in the answer to this question, we see in number three, that she longs for resolution. She's hearing the things that she wants to hear and that she needs to hear, but these things aren't fully resolved in her mind. Verse 25, she says, The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. She doesn't understand all that Jesus is saying, but there is a hunger in her for the truth. And she wants to know that she is truly worshiping God but she's not able to see things from the Jewish perspective. And she certainly doesn't see Jesus for who He is as the source of salvation, the spring of living water. So He has an answer for her, and that is this, verse 26. Jesus emphatically declares, I am He. Jesus is the answer. All that she is looking for can be found in Him. What's really interesting here is that in the original Greek language, it doesn't say, I am He. It simply says, I am. She's heard that before. That's in the Pentateuch. When she heard that, I believe that her world was absolutely rocked to the core as she began to realize who it is that she's talking to. Just a few minutes ago, she's talking to a total stranger who needs some water, 
and has nothing to draw it from and claims to have the ability to give living water. And as she's had this dialogue with him, she's recognizing that this is in fact a long-awaited Messiah. Unlike Nicodemus, she knew nothing of any signs that Jesus had performed. She hadn't seen any of those miracles. She hasn't seen anybody coming to Him. She hasn't seen any of the baptisms. But because of what He knew about her, the way He treated and dealt with her, confirmed the accuracy of of His claim in her mind that He was in fact the One that gives living water. The woman who so desperately needed spiritual renewal had finally found it. She couldn't have been any different from Nicodemus. But her need was just as great. You know, some of us have been saved from a lifestyle that would be considered heathen. And for those of us like that, and that's my testimony, not a challenge to really see our sin and our need for a Savior. Those that have grown up in the church, those that have grown up in some kind of religious system, often lose sight of the depth of their sin and think that they can throw some religious activity, they can give a little bit of money, they can do some nice things, they polish up the outside real good and maybe that's enough for God. There's no amount of morality, there's no amount of good works that will ever replace our need for Jesus as our Savior. Confessing our sin and repenting of it, that is the doorway to salvation. And as we'll look at later, He is that door. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, please? Well, Father, we wholly acknowledge how undeserving we are of the great gift of salvation You've given to us. We just can't be good enough or clean enough to enter into Your kingdom apart from being born again. Father, thank You for giving to us the truth about who Jesus is and what He did. Thank You for giving us faith that allows us to know that and to respond to that. And Father, I pray that we would be so overwhelmed with the greatness of the gift that You've given to us that we just couldn't remain in a posture of tolerating the sin in our life. God, through the work of your Spirit in us, would you burden our hearts to be more clean, to be more obedient, to be more faithful, to be more willing to give ourselves to you. Strip away, Father, the substitutes in our life. Help us to see the depth of our need for you, we pray in Jesus' name.